It's great to have everyone here this morning. We have a great crowd today and to look out and see Stephen Whiting. That's just kind of awesome to have Stephen with us. But oh my goodness, to see Bobby Cruz, our former youth minister, sitting back here. Oh wow. I was singing. I was singing. I spotted Bobby. Bobby, the baby leapt in its in my womb. I want you to know that when I saw you. I was that excited to see you. So, so glad that you're here, man. Today, um, we have Don with us again. Uh, Don McLaughlin has been with us all weekend, has done an amazing job. And I want to read to you a snippet uh, from the introduction to his book that he wrote. Because it's such a great challenge to us and very much the theme of what we've been talking about this weekend. He says, the church should be comforting when the world is hurting, fearless when the world is fearful. Why? Well, the answer is both complicated and simple. The complexity is in the social makeup and history of religious movements in America. And the burdensome reality is that churches are moved more by fear than by love. In a tragic twist of scripture, perfect fear has cast out love from most of our churches. And this keeps us on edge. Rather than being peacemakers, we often build walls and suspicion. It's such a powerful challenge to God's church to make sure that we are about comfort, that we are about courage rather than fear, and that we are about love rather than hate. Don is the preaching minister for the North Atlanta Church of Christ, and uh, have had the opportunity to know Don for quite a few years and his wife and his children. and um, He is such a blessing to the church there in Atlanta and to the kingdom in general. Many of you have had a chance to hear him at things like Pepperdine, the Pepperdine Lectures and things like that, and we're really honored to have him with us today. So let's welcome today Don McLaughlin. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Wow, it's so good to be with you this morning. I've enjoyed uh, the last few days, and thank you for coming. If you were uh, in Sunday school, uh, you know that uh, Colorado... Uh, is home to uh, my mom, to our family. My mom lives on a farm over in Gateway outside of Grand Junction. And uh, my grandparents live there. My great-grandparents live there. And uh, so I appreciate you all uh, so much. Uh, I've got a son up in Denver and cousins all up and down I-25. And so it just feels good to come home. I want to thank you for being courageous. Uh, I know sometimes we don't feel courageous, but maybe from the outside, other people can look at us and see courage within us. But when we talk about what it means to be the people of God, I want to introduce my church family to you. And uh, I thought that would be a good way to start because, you know, you see me, you meet me, uh, but it would be better if you met the family that I'm a part of. The reason I want to do this is because when we moved to Atlanta in 1997, I saw something in the church. It was wonderful. And a few of you have visited even back then. And there was love, and there was a friendliness, uh, there was joy, there was fervor in the Lord. But what we also realized was that the world around us had changed dramatically, and there was this underlying anxiousness that we were behind. There was a realization that we no longer were growing in a way that we had seen in the past. We also recognized that there were conversations happening in the world that were not happening inside our doors. And one of the things that bothered me was 
is that our families, our children, our people were out in schools that were having those conversations, workplaces, having those conversations, online, social media, having those conversations. But we weren't having them in the church. We were afraid. So think about some of the conversations. Conversations over the last 25 years in America about race, about sexuality, right? Conversations that people are immersed in for one reason or another, maybe in your family, maybe at work, maybe in your school. But when we got the church, we didn't know how to enter those conversations. Then the political conversations changed. Those of you that are my age and up, you know that the way we talk about politics right now in America today, it hasn't always been like this. It hasn't always functioned just like this. Part of the reason was we didn't have social media where anyone with an opinion has an international voice. But once again, we just didn't know how to talk about it. So we made the decision that we would start talking about it. So back in 1997, 1998, we started talking about race. And we started having conversations about why we don't have conversations. And that started on a Wednesday night. We were having these conversations. So one of my co-ministers and I, we were having a conversation on race, and we were speaking fairly bluntly about race. It wasn't that dangerous because our church was 97% white, and the few black families that we had They had become a part of our church and had been very willing to participate in an almost white church. So we were teaching these classes, but we kind of got in, dug in a little bit deeper, right? And as we were digging into these subjects, and it was getting a little more difficult to dig into them, and some sore wounds began to surface. One night, I walked out the back door of the auditorium after a class. I didn't see it coming, but a a woman with a pretty decent wind-up came around with her purse, whack hit me in the side of the face. I mean, just whack. I didn't see it coming. She, she really had it. She had something going, right? And I uh, knocked my glasses off. They went flying. I wasn't sure exactly what happened. Uh, but when I kind of realized what was happening, she was expressing her frustration with the fact that we were talking about this. Uh, one of my co-ministers was trying to pick up my glasses and the things that had flown out of her purse. And uh, that's kind of a dangerous thing, by the way, to pick up anything that might have flown out of a, a lady's purse. But and uh, finally, I looked at this woman, and it was so, so, so angry, so frustrating, and then I saw something in her. I saw that she was afraid, and I didn't want her to be afraid. And so I said to her, I'm not sure what we need to do next, but I can't imagine that God wants us to end the evening just like this. Could we go back in the auditorium and sit down? And we did. And she began to share her frustration. She said, you know, we don't have a problem with race. This is the new South. This isn't the old South. We don't have these problems until someone like you stirs them up. And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure that that's how everyone feels. One of our members, one of our black members, an elder's wife, was watching from the door. So she walked over and she sat down. And this lady looked at her. Do you agree? With what? With what he said in there. Well, I'm not sure all that he said in there. I was working in the children's ministry. Well, how do you feel about living in our community? And this black woman said, it's it's better Oh, what do you mean? 
I don't feel as afraid. I don't feel as much as an outsider. I feel some more acceptance. That simple conversation revolutionized at least two lives that evening, mine and the woman with the right hook. She was so surprised that someone she had gone to church with for 15 years had feelings she didn't know she had, had experiences that felt foreign to her. Surely everyone feels welcome in our community. Everyone feels welcome in our church. Don't we all just want to get along? But she discovered that there were two stories being played out at exactly the same time. Now, to her credit, she's still a member of our church, and she's thriving. But that night was a big change for her. This is our family now. I'll tell you a little bit about our, our, uh, uh, that's not our family. That went to your slides, but I want to go to mine. There we go. Okay, so these are our children, children's ministry. Uh, I always love look, looking at these churches uh, or these pictures of our church. This is youth ministry, uh, young adult ministry, more young adult ministry, uh, one of our superstar college students, our senior citizens uh, ministry. Uh, that, uh, this here was a, uh, a mission trip. Uh, to Honduras, and I keep thinking that over there I'm either meditating deeply on the Lord or I need to use a restroom, one of the two. Um, and uh, some of our leaders at our church, our elders and upcoming leaders, and that's of course Chloe who always finds her way into every picture. Uh, one of our elders on the left, hopefully one of our future elders on the right. Uh, some in our Latino ministry who uh, every year plan a celebration for our youth ministry. Uh, then you have one of our young uh, graduates uh, from law school. Uh, you notice how some churches have a lot of doctors and some churches have a lot of realtors or whatever. We have a lot of lawyers. We have 22 of them. He's number 23, just newly minted. Uh, one of our elders leading the Bible study, the men's Bible study that I'm in. Uh, some of our small groups. Uh, this is one of our small groups taking care of one of our members that was injured and unable to take care of his home. Uh, another picture of a small group. Uh, this is after we found out how much money we raised for youth missions. We were pretty excited that day. This is our uh, preschool. We have a preschool, not a full school like yours. Our preschool has about 140 students. 95% of them are from India. Uh, this is one of our ministers sharing his faith with one of our fathers from India. This is Varsha, like Marsha, with my wife. Uh, she was baptized this year, uh, grew up in India, moved to America uh, uh, with a, a tech company, and uh, is now uh, in a, a part of our church. Uh, this is the preschool uh, staff. Uh, we had Ruby Bridges come to our church. Some of you remember that Ruby Bridges integrated public schools in the South in 1960. And uh, Ruby came to our church, spent a great weekend with us. And some of our families and members of our church, uh, singles and so on, we set up in our gym, we set up like a kind of like a exhibit where you could walk through the history of racism all the way going back to Europe and then coming into the United States history, eventually coming around to uh, where they had set up a a schoolroom just like the first grade uh, where Ruby could talk to people about her experiences. This is a baby blessing. This is one of our Be the Bridge groups. What we do here is many of our members get together, black uh, and brown and uh, white members. Uh, they get together in groups and they talk about these through a curriculum that's nine sessions and they talk about difficult conversations, get to know each other, help each other better understand each other. One of the fascinating things about this picture is here on the left, 
uh, the third woman down who's wearing kind of the, uh, in that picture, it looks a little bit like a red uh, outfit. She's Muslim. She's a friend of my wife. She met her in the community, and she invited her to come. She agreed to come to this because of the subject matter. But one of the things she confessed to my wife was she said, it's hard for me to explain how much peace I feel when I'm with your church. Uh, these are some of our leaders, a bunch of our uh, elders and deacons and wives and teachers and so on. I love, I just love, love, love that uh, picture. This is my family. Uh, that's my wife and I. That's a selfie after we finally got a, a wedding underway last September 29th. And so there in the middle is our son, Jerome, and uh, his wife, Whitney. And so uh, you may notice that he's wrapped in a little darker color than the rest of our family. Uh, he's adopted. Uh, so over here on the left... Uh, the second one in is our son, Don. He's 35. The next one is our son, Aaron. He's 33. The next one is Jerome. He's 33. All the way over on the far right is our son, Aaron's wife, Aaron. <laughs> the wedding, do you, Aaron? Take your Aaron to be your Aaron, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, one of our granddaughters there, uh, the next one, second one in for the right is our son, Caleb. He lives and works for Denver Healthcare. Uh, and then the next one is our daughter's um, uh, husband, and then our daughter, Amy, who's uh, 29, and they're married. And then over here on the left is our son's husband. I don't Photoshop my family. My oldest son is gay. My daughter is a preaching instructor at Abilene Christian, and I have a black son. That's kind of a trifecta in the church. You see, one of the things that happens in life is we have a tendency to Photoshop the truth because we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to find language for the reality. How many of you have an ideal, but the ideal isn't the real? How many of you imagine that children and grandchildren would just kind of grow up a certain way and that you'd just be so happy about how it all turned out? Am I the only one in the room? Do any of you pray for a child or grandchild with earnest tears? Do you? Have any of you had to wrap your heart around someone in your family that the way that their life is is different than the way that you imagined their life? One of the things that's been fascinating through the years I know that you had Sally Gary here, and you had a very a great conversation with her. She's a great friend of mine. In 2001, uh, one of the leaders at our church, we were at a men's retreat together, and uh, I could tell something was troubling him deeply. And so I said to him, hey, man, in the next small group time together, why don't we, um, why don't we just have a small group, like a really small group, like you and me? Incredibly small group. So we were at a state park up in North Georgia, and we went out on a big veranda there, and we sat down together, and I said, here's the thing. I've been watching you for the last few months. He'd been my friend for four years. I said, I've been watching you for the last few months. Something's gone off the rails in your life, and I want to know what it is right now. I believe in being direct, and I believe in being transparent. Well, he started crying. He was weeping. He was having trouble finding the words. But finally, he began to talk about the, his struggle with pornography. And I know it was serious. And I know it's serious. 
But as I watched his body language and I watched his tears and I heard his voice, I could tell that that was only part of what he was dealing with. That wasn't the whole story. But we prayed, we hugged. In the parking lot on that Saturday afternoon, I said to him, hey, man, I know today's been a tough day. Why don't you come and get some coffee with me on uh, Tuesday and, and we'll talk some more. He came to my office that next Tuesday and sat down and I said, now I want you to tell me everything you were too afraid to tell me last Saturday. He said, I'm gay. I've been married 18 years. He has several children. He said, I've been in an affair for the last five years and I don't know what to do. I said, have you ever told anyone? No. And I didn't think I could even tell you. Hmm. I wondered about the church, and I wondered about what the church could do in the world that the world can't do on its own. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered what the church is on the earth for? Like what we're capable of doing that nowhere else, it can't happen anywhere else? I said, I don't exactly know what it's going to take for you to walk this journey, but I will walk it with you, whatever that takes. We started a ministry, and over the next four years, I met with many members of our church that that was their journey for the next four years, every Tuesday afternoon. It was four years later that our son came out and shared with us that he was on that journey. That wasn't my easiest day, I can tell you that much, but I can tell you this, I thanked God that he gave me four years of the church having an important conversation so that as a father, I was a little better equipped for the one I was in. Can you relate to that? You see, the truth is the church has an opportunity to be something really, really special. But it's going to take a unique kind of love to do it. This here is the day of the wedding. And so up there on the left is my wife with our future daughter-in-law and then our son and uh, us in the middle. Over there on the right, that is a hug of love, but that's also a hug of victory because I had to figure out how to tie an actual bow tie that wasn't a, a clip-on. I was a victory hug. And, uh, and then I'm looking at the pictures here because I can still see them. And, uh, uh, and so I begin to ask the question, what would it take for a church to love like Jesus teaches us to love? So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 15, I think we've got a story in Scripture that can help us do this together. So turn to Luke chapter 15. I was listening to the minister of the other church uh, that you share the building with here, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant solution. And um, he said that they were having trouble with their projectors and the lights this morning during their service. And so I thought to myself, oh, it might show up in ours. We can navigate that all right, correct? We got ourselves, we got the Lord, we got our Bibles. We're going to do okay? So look at Luke chapter 15, if you would. And Luke chapter 15, we'll begin in verse 1. And I want you to uh, look at this with me. Luke 15 and verse 1. Hold on just a moment. All right. I'm on my way there myself. Is it on? It's okay. Hold on. All right. Give me just one moment. Then Jesus told them this parable. Ah, nice timing. Uh, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. I'm sorry, I'm verse 3. Uh, turn, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Are you comfortable if I come down off the stage? Is that okay? I, it just feels a little uh, distant uh, for me. 
So what were they muttering about? Could you look at your Bible and talk about what they're muttering about? Look at the end of verse 2. What were they muttering about? What was the big issue? Go ahead and look at your Bible. What's the big issue? Right. You're welcoming sinners and you're eating with them. So the big issue between Jesus and his opponents is you act like sinners are welcome. You act like sinners are welcome. It's not that sinners are welcome. That doesn't bother us. It bothers us that you act like they're welcome. You get what I'm saying? It's one thing to say, oh, everyone's welcome here. Man, no matter what you got going on, it's welcome. And haven't we heard that during the service today, that everyone is welcome here? Wasn't that mentioned several times? Wasn't that part of our, our message? Didn't Eddie do a great job mentioning that? But see, that's not the problem with Jesus. The problem they have with Jesus is that he acts like they're welcome. See, because it's one thing to say people are welcome and then to keep a little bit of distance so that everyone knows that, you know, that you have enough distance that you're righteous and they're unrighteous and that you know what righteousness is and you know what sin is and that they're on that side of the fence and you're on this side of the fence and we all know the truth, right? But Jesus is so welcoming that people begin to wonder, does he really know how bad these people are? You remember in Luke chapter 7, he's at a Pharisee's house. He gets invited to dinner. Remember that? Lady comes in, and she's crying at his feet and wiping his hair. And do you remember what the religious leader says? This guy's a fraud. Because, see, if he knew what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner, he would never receive her this way, which makes Jesus a fraud. So you understand, look at your Bibles carefully, their problem is that Jesus acts like sinners are welcome. And he even takes it a step farther. He says, come in and eat with me. Well, Jesus says, notice with me, verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. So why does Jesus tell the parable? He tells the parable because they said that he is welcoming sinners. So Jesus tells them a parable. How many of you have read Luke 15 before? How many parables do you think there are? Yeah, right. We think there's at least three, right? That there's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boys, right? But what does Luke say in verse 3? How many parables are there? Look at your Bible. Thank you. There's only one parable. There's just three ways to tell it. You ready? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep till he finds it? And when he finds it, he picks it up, swats it on the bottom, throws it over his shoulder and says, if you run away one more time, that's it. No, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And then he goes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. He says, in the same way I tell you, there will be more heaven or rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Now, quick question. How many people actually in Jesus' audience do not need to repent? None. How many think they don't need to repent? Apparently 99. Do you notice they have a problem with Jesus' seating chart? The tax collectors and the sinners, they got there, and the Bible says they gathered around Jesus. They felt comfortable around Jesus. So they're all gathered around Jesus like they belong on the front row. The Pharisees show up, and they're like, 
Kind of like showing up at church and a visitor got there and they got your seat before you got there and you're like, mm-hmm. You must be a visitor. I've been sitting in that seat for about 25 years. And if I need to produce contribution receipts to prove that I have paid for the seat. You guys know this, right? So when the Pharisees show up, what are the sinners supposed to do? Scatter like cockroaches is what they're supposed to do. Sinners are supposed to get up and get out of the way of the righteous. But they don't. Because Jesus acts like they're welcome. They kind of lose themselves. They're intoxicated by his love. And so in their drunken spiritual stupor, they stay put right up close to Jesus because they just feel like he wants them there. So when the religious elite show up that are used to the front row seats and the front row seats are taken by sinners, they are discombobulated. Well, what do we do? Well, I guess we shall stand back and mutter. And so Jesus says, well, let me ask you something. If you were to have some lost sheep and they turn up at home, wouldn't you be glad? Hmm. He says, or suppose there's a woman. She has ten silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? How long does she look for it? until she finds it. Have you ever lost your keys? How long do you look for them? Until you find them. You don't quit looking until you find something that you can't live without. Apparently, she couldn't live without those coins. When she found it, she called her friends together and said, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, everyone look at Luke 15, 11 and say the first two words out loud with me. Luke 15, 11. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus continued. How many parables are there? One. What does Luke 15, 11 give you a clue on? When it says Jesus continued, he wasn't starting a new parable. He's on the same subject. You ready? There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father did. He divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I'm here starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, how far off? A long way off. Was he headed in the right direction? Seems to be. But how far off is he from where his father wishes he was? A long way off. So what does the father do? <laughs> Here comes the boy. Oh, Mr. Know-it-all. He who knows what to do with his money better than his dad. 
He who couldn't stand living on a farm. No. Hmm. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Well, you know, that dad's acting like Jesus. He's acting like sinners are welcome. And you realize this throws off the son, does it not? Because the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. The dad interrupts the four-part speech before he gets to the fourth part, which was make me like a hired hand, because as soon as the son says, I've sinned against heaven, what's the, what's the dad thinking? Amen. And I've sinned against you. That would be a second amen. But when he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son, the dad says, oh, no, 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 no. that's not up to you to decide. That's up to me. And you are my son. And now I'm going to act like it. Quick. Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate real quickly. How much does the father actually know about his son's coming to his senses? How much spiritual progress has this boy conveyed? I mean, has he just matured into suddenly this righteous young man? The dad is like, well, man, he's finally nailed it. All the dad knows is that his boy is headed home and that's enough to treat him like he belongs. Hmm. Does everyone think this is a good idea? Verse 25. In verse 25, there is a word that causes a lot of problems in humanity. The very first word is meanwhile. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard, see the party is spilling out out of the walls, right? He heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what's going on. Now, I don't know how you would feel if you were a servant, but if suddenly a fattened calf was killed and a big party is and you don't have to work that day and you're in the house and everybody's having a party, I don't know how you would be as a servant, but you might have danced right out the back door, down the steps. You've got kind of a plate of food. You know, you're all excited and everything. The older brother walks up and you're like, hey, guess what? Your brother's come home. And then you see the brother's face and you're like, oh, hey. Let me go get your dad. I'll be right back. Verse 28. The older brother became so angry. The older brother became so angry. The older brother became so angry. Who's he so angry at, Jim? He's just mad at. Who's the boy so mad at? So mad that he could bite a nail in half. Who's he so angry with? He refused to go in. So the servant said, your oldest son's outside. He refused to come in. Dad said, oh, well, he spoils every party he's ever been a part of. Leave him out there. No, the father went out to him. You realize just like he went out to the younger son. You see that? In the same way he treated his younger boy, the same way he treated the older boy. He went out to both of them, and he pleaded with him. 
But now we know who he was angry at. They answered his father, look all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, no brother of mine, this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes come home, oh, you kill the fattened calf for him. Who's he mad at? He's mad at his dad. Why is he mad at his dad? Because his dad acts like sinners belong. What would you do if you were the dad? How would you respond if your son treated you like that? Look at verse 31. What's the dad's first two words? My son. So notice he's acting like sinners belong again. He said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where the story leaves us. You see, the story leaves us. We don't know if the boy went in the house or not, do we? We don't know if the older brother ever did repent, do we? We don't know if the older brother just turned around and walked back into the field because you notice Jesus drops the story right there. So let's put it all together. You've got one parable Three ways to tell it. What's the first way to tell it? Well, there's a sheep that's lost away. What's the second way to tell it? There's a coin that's lost at home. What's the third way to tell it? There's two boys, and one of them's lost away, and one of them's lost at home. And Jesus is surrounded by sinners and tax collectors that are lost away and religious leaders that are lost at home. You see, the lost aren't always outside the church, right? When I look at my life and I look at the church in America, the world, I look at my own church, I realize that we can be lost outside these walls and lost inside these walls, can we not? Has that not been your experience through your long life in Christ for many of you that have served the Lord for a long time? Haven't you gone through seasons where you look at your life and you just think to yourself, I feel so distant from God. Are my, are my prayers even getting above the, be- the, the, the ceiling? Is God even out there? Some of you that have prayed for someone to be healed. Some of you prayed for a child to come back. Some of you prayed for your own prodigal. Have you not said, God, are you not listening to me? Some of you sit here right now today and you took communion and you sang the songs and God bless you that you did, but you're still wondering, is it even real? I'm here, I'm doing it, but is this thing real? Sometimes we can be right at home and feel lost. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you about a father that a lot of people get mad at. A father that so acts like sinners are welcome that sometimes we feel like he's blurred the lines. Wasn't that the criticism of Jesus? Didn't they say to Jesus, accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton? And if you know the Scripture, say it out loud with me, and a friend of sinners. Didn't they accuse him of that? So what was Jesus acting like? Like sinners belonged. 
Was everyone happy about that? No. And this older brother is mad at the father, but in the story, who does the father represent? God. Mad at God because God seems to have a place in his kingdom for people that just don't, we don't feel like they fit. How many of you are glad that God accepts prodigals home? How many of you wish he would let you vet them? See what I'm saying? Because it's not that sinners don't belong. You just can't act like they belong a bunch. You can't act like they really belong, like we are really happy they're here. You've got to somehow, you got to somehow make it clear that, yeah, we love the, the sinner, but we hate the sin, right? We said in Sunday school, one of the mantras we have at home is love the sinner and hate your own sin. Because when, what I realized was, in order for me to see the good in others, it might have to start with me really seeing the bad in me. It's kind of what Jesus says about that whole splinter in the other person's eye and log in your eye. Remember that? But to take love seriously means that you might find yourself being accused of emphasizing grace too much. You might be accused of making sinners feel too welcome. You might be accused of blurring the lines. Listen, if you're accused of too much grace, you're just almost like Jesus. The one accused of not being a counselor to sinners, a priest to sinners, a friend, a friend, a friend. So what would it be like for a church to decide that we would love like that? Well, one thing is you might get hit in the face with a verse. But you also might have a lifelong friend out of the experience. Oh, we've had a lot of experiences over the years. I'll be honest with you, when we started our drug and alcohol rehab uh, uh, ministry about 20 years ago, I wouldn't have known cocaine if you labeled it and put it on a plate. Of all my truckload of sins throughout the course of my life, I never did drugs of any kind. I had a truckload of sins. That just wasn't in the truckload. So we start this ministry to people that are in an addiction. And people wanted to know. I mean... What are we going to teach our kids? I said, well, I don't know, because some of your kids are the ones we're helping. What? Yes. We had designated smoking areas. We had, de we had a designated smoking areas. People were upset. I can't believe we have designated smoking areas. We're going to be teaching our kids to smoke. I looked at them and said, why would you? No, the designated smoking areas will teach them to smoke. You realize there are designated smoking areas all over the community. You mean that these two on our property will teach them to smoke? Well, they'll get the idea that God's okay with it. They, that having designated smoking areas, you mean as a parent, you are so incompetent that you can't have that conversation with your child and help them navigate this? That the fact that someone is smoking a cigarette might be the smallest problem they have in the last 20 years of addiction that they're finally free from? Well, can we just hide them? Hide what? The smoking areas or the people that need them? Hide what? Are we more concerned with 
looking righteous or being righteous? Are we more concerned with how people perceive us or how we really are? My dad quit smoking. It was shocking. He'd smoked for 42 years. Those of you that have smoked or have someone in your life that smokes, he smoked three packs a day. Those of you that know anything about that, that's 60 cigarettes a day. You've got to be on it. I mean, you've got to be flying through them. Some of you know you've got to almost light one from the next. I mean, if you're going to get through 60 a day, you've just got to stay after it. We tried to get my dad to quit smoking. He wasn't having it. I said, man, come on, Dad. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, I was trying everything, right? He said, yeah, well, you drink Coke, so you're blowing it that way. Nah, I'll quit drinking Coke. Finally, one day, he quit smoking. It was, it was February of 1987. I remember it. I said, hey, man, I heard you quit smoking. Yeah. Well, Dad, that's a big deal. I, to you? Well, yeah, it's a big deal to me. I said, why'd you quit? He said, I didn't want to be the one that taught my grandsons to smoke. Okay. He said, I don't think it's a sin, so don't tell anybody I quit for that reason. I think everybody's doing something that our body they ought not to be doing. I like smoking. But I quit because I didn't want to teach my grandkids to smoke. Okay. How many of you have different feelings about smoking than what my dad had? Me. But you know what I respected about him? He was honest. He was straightforward. And he understood that he was saved whether he quit smoking or not. How many of you have a few sins that you've grown comfortable with? Have you? I want to know. Have you got a few sins that have hung on? Have you got a few that you've prayed in anguish about and asked the Lord to deliver you from and you're still battling them? Yes or no? Shake your head yes, no, or maybe it'll go a little faster. How many of you haven't sinned in so long you can't even remember the last time you sinned? Someone that loves you will help you with that. You see, the truth is, when we see others with repetitive sin... Sometimes it just makes it easier for us, like the Pharisees, to stand and mutter about them than to have to live with the truth about ourselves. This is why grace is so amazing, because it liberates us like the Father liberated both of His boys. I had to make this decision a long time ago that being a father was about being faithful, not about how my kids turn out. How many of you have young children right now? Raise your hand if you have young children right now. All right? I'm going to tell you something I want to make sure you hang on to. You'll do your best parenting after your kids leave home. Your kids have given their whole young life to raising you to be a parent. About the time you get fairly good at it, they leave home and they don't have any return on investment. So you got to be a good parent after they leave home so that they can at least get a return on the investment they've given their whole lives to raise you to be a decent parent. But if you think being a good parent means that your kids just handle everything just right, you need to have a conversation with God in Genesis 3. 
You had a perfect father, two kids, boy and a girl, they go off the rails. Are you going to tell God, you weren't a very good parent? Or maybe what God would say to you is, being a good parent is about me being faithful to my children. Was the father in the story in Luke 15 a good dad? Did both of his boys struggle? So what was the measure of being a good dad? Being faithful to both of those boys. What did Jesus want his audience to hear? Whether you're a tax collector and a sinner that's anxious because you feel like you don't belong or you're a Pharisee that is anxious because you think they don't belong. Jesus was faithful to both. And he's here to be faithful to us this morning. Being a faithful church in this community means loving people the way that father loved his two sons. Looking for a sheep lost far away and hunting for a coin you can't live without. That's the gift of what it means to love first. And that's the gift that this church can give to this community. So this morning, I'm going to close this with a prayer. I want to thank you for considering these teachings of Jesus. Thank you for considering His, His example. And what I'd ask you to think about is, how will you live what He brought to us today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for who you are, what you've done, and what you've taught. Father, we recognize that we could Photoshop our physical families, our church families. We could pretend that the people of God look a certain way when we know Scripture shows a different picture. We want to live like you, and we want to love like you. So we ask you to step into our hearts today in a fresh way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.